All right. Welcome back to another Faith in the Outdoors podcast with Sean McVeigh. And I don't know if any of you are surprised to be seeing this episode right now or hearing it because in the last episode, I wasn't sure if that was going to be my last one. I feel that God has brought some things to my attention to share with you this week. So here we go. I, I'm just trying to follow the Holy Spirit here. So We'll see the the future of the Faith in the Outdoors podcast. Perhaps God's going to keep inspiring me with things to share as he has this week. Uh, Let's do what we should do, which is to begin with a prayer. And being a follower of Jesus, I'm going to pray to our Father in heaven in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. As I reach to you, Father, and ask for your guidance through your Holy Spirit, Help me to share the message you would have me share about your Son and about the gift of your Holy Spirit that you have given us. Please help us grow closer to you each and every day. And Lord, as we prepare for the coming of Jesus as a child at Christmas and for his second coming, we ask for you to give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and wisdom to know what is your message and how to follow it. We pray all this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so a couple things right out of the gate that I want to share. One is today I'm recording this on December the 10th. So it's Sunday, December 10th. We we are the second Sunday of Advent right now. I'm going to air this podcast on Tuesday. And I am going to be doing a bow giveaway here later in December. So if you're not familiar with my channel or what I do, I tend to do bow giveaways every year. I've given away a number of compound bows this year. And in a few weeks, I'm going to give away a Dragon X8 Pro package by Sanlita. And also a Sanlita, I believe it's the Eagle X9. It's a recurve, a takedown recurve, 45 pound that I just did a review video on recently. So if you want to see that video, check it out on my channel. And I'm also going to give away a snack time feeder. The guy over there who is the owner of the company is very generous to me and my followers. Every year he's been giving away a snack time feeder. So he has offered to do that. If you're not familiar with how I do these things, I send out a newsletter through my website and I give a registration form for people to fill out. So if you want to get in on the giveaways and you're not already a registered member of my newsletter, go to the seansoutdooradventures.com website and pretty much on any page of the website, there is an option to sign up for the newsletter. Now, if you sign up for the newsletter, you're going to get an automated email right away that's to confirm your email address. If you don't see that in your inbox, better check your spam because it was sent And if you don't confirm your email address, you're not going to end up getting the newsletter. You're not going to get the registration form. And you'll be out of the loop when it comes to the giveaway. And I want everyone to have a chance to win some of those great prizes. So, again, go over the website for that. Now, in this episode, I'm going to talk about some elements of faith and elements of the outdoors and hunting. I want to give you some updates on the hunting And I also want to give you some updates on some outdoor-related things. But first, let's talk about some faith-related things. If you are watching the video, you see I have two crucifixes on my little table here where I'm recording this podcast this week. I have been using this crucifix, which is the has the medal of Saint Benedict in the in right behind Jesus's head, 
And I actually took that from our living room when I went to record the first podcast. And I've been still borrowing it from our living room uh, for the podcasts. Now, next to it, you'll see I have this nice um, crucifix. This actually was handcrafted in Jerusalem. I bought it today after Mass. So um, if you're Catholic, you're probably familiar with this. About once a year, uh, missionaries from Jerusalem come and sell their handcrafted goods. So it supports the proceeds support the Christians living in Jerusalem, and they basically make their living off of handcrafting these religious types, these types of religious items. So I wanted to get a crucifix for my table here to keep so that I could return the other one to my living room. I want to quickly talk to you a little bit about these crucifixes. And then I want to talk about a couple things since we're coming up on Christmas. I want to talk about some hot topics that a lot of non-Catholic Christians um, kind of have a difficulty with at times with what Catholics teach regarding the perpetual virginity of Mary and things like that. So we're going to get into some scripture today related to that. And in the outdoor-related portion of today's podcast, I want to talk about hunting, especially as we get later into the hunting season and God's providence and God's plan. So make sure you uh, stay tuned all the way through. So as of right now, I want to quickly talk about this crucifix that I'm holding that has the Medal of St. Benedict on the back of the crucifix. You see a little image of St. Benedict. Now, if, if you are Catholic, you already know we have a practice of in our tradition of interceding for others, like we pray for others. I mean, all Christians are supposed to do that. We're supposed to pray for one another, and we're supposed to ask each other for prayers. Like if you read the book of Acts, they would be praying and interceding for Peter and Paul, especially when it was approaching their deaths, things like that. So it is a practice of Christianity to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe that we are not separated from a fellow believer through death because that believer, when we believe someone goes to heaven, they remain with God. They're in Christ more completely than we might be here on earth. So um, we are connected through Christ, and we believe that the prayers of the saints continue to be prayed for us, in, even in heaven. And in, there's depictions of that in the book of Revelation where you know, the prayers of the saints— go up before God like incense from a bowl, and they we believe they intercede for us. And we believe that it's a good practice to ask for prayers. So since people in heaven are no longer bound by sin or temptation, they are perfected in Jesus, Scripture tells us in the book of James that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful indeed. So we believe the prayers of these perfected Christians in heaven are very powerful indeed. So we think it's a good practice to say, hey, you know, please pray for me. Like if you have a, a relative who's passed away, who's in heaven, who you love and you know loves you, it, we believe it's okay to say, like my grandma, I love my grandma, she's in heaven. Hey, grandma, please uh, say a prayer for me in this situation. I really need God's help. So it's God who grants the help and grace. We still pray for one another because that's the plan of God. So anyhow, when it comes to St. Benedict, you know, and having this the medal of St. Benedict, this St. Benedict, if you're not familiar with him, he's considered by many to be the father of monasticism, especially in the Western church. So if you ever heard of the Benedictines, they are an order of priests and brothers who live the rule that St. Benedict 
laid out for living a religious life. And there was many miracles around the life of St. Benedict. And there was times like, for example, somebody tried to poison him once by putting poison in, in his drink. And when he said grace, like the blessing before meals, the, the glass burst because the poison was in it and not, you know, it just ran out so that he didn't drink the poison. There was all kinds of miracles. So anyhow, the Medal of St. Benedict has all these inscriptions and significances and meanings in there. And I don't have them all memorized. I, I will tell you my favorite one though. Like there's a, a thing in Latin in here and the meaning of it is in reference to Satan he says, drink your poison yourself. So part of this um, metal, it's, it's kind of considered the exorcist metal. You know, it's against Satan and the evil spirits. So the, the metal of St. Benedict and the intercession of St. Benedict is, is powerful, and I believe that. So that's the crucifix that we have had in our, our living room, and I have bought this same crucifix for each of my kids when they got their sacrament of their first Holy Communion, we bought them for their in their room, each each of them. So that's going to go back to the living room. I will lay that down for right now just so that we can give a little more focus on this other crucifix that I just got today. It was uh, handcrafted from the, like, the olive wood in the from the Holy Land. Uh, we see there's a corpus of Jesus. I've talked about that before, why Catholics have Jesus on the cross. It's a reminder not only of the sacrifice that Jesus offered for our salvation, but he tells us we are to carry our cross every day in following him. And so seeing the, the, the whipped, beaten, abused, and crucified body of Jesus reminds the follower of Jesus what your destiny is. This is where we're headed, folks. If you're living the Christian walk, you can guarantee that you will suffer with Christ. And this is the reminder of that, and it's an inspiration to us. So that's many of the reasons. It also keeps us focused in prayer. When I look at this corpus of Jesus on the cross, it helps me stay focused on Jesus himself in prayer. When I see an empty cross, I'm just not, my, my mind is easy, more easily floats away to something else and gets distracted. So I'm holding a little card in my hand. Now, on this particular crucifix, in the very top, there's a little circular uh, container. And inside that is um, incense that was from the, uh, you know, it's, it was taken to the tomb of Jesus. And so that's the incense that was there. On the, the one side, there are olive leaves from the Mount of Olives. So I've never been to the Holy Land myself, but these leaves right here and this olive wood is from, you know, the Mount of Olives in the Holy Land. So the stones on the opposite side of that over here, they're from the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus suffered immensely, um, you know, spiritually to the point where he was shedding like drops of blood. Now, at the bottom is um, granulars from the ground in Jerusalem. So pretty cool stuff. Now, why do Catholics do this? Why do Catholics do this type of thing? God has shown us in Scripture, in his revelation, that physical objects do have spiritual power attached to them at times. So let's think of the example of St. Paul. In the book of Acts, it talks about people taking even just the handkerchief of Paul to sick people, and they would be miraculously cured through the power of God through this 
this implement, this physical object that came from Paul. So as St. Paul talks about in his letters, that God has given spiritual gifts to the family of God. There's all kinds of different spiritual gifts. And like one of my, let's call it a charism, is I, I have this charism of evangelization and teaching. I have a lot of people compliment my approach to teaching. They, they say I'm very down to earth, very relatable, very understandable. And I believe that's really just because God has given me that charism. You could have another person who doesn't have that charism try to communicate the same message, and it just doesn't have the fluency. It's more kind of choppy, textbooky, and you don't fully grasp the message. And it, it's just because they have different gifts. So when we take that concept and we see that God grants spiritual power through things like physical things, like the handkerchief of St. Paul— you know, I'm also thinking of like Elijah in, in the end of his life, he rolled up his cloak and struck the water and the water separated and he crossed the water with Elisha, the, the, you know, his person who was going to follow him. And he ended up giving the cloak to him, to Elisha. Um, and then he was taken up in a chariot. So there's significance in physical objects, my friends. So to have these physical objects that come from the Holy Land, we believe that God does grant special grace to that. It's God who always grants the grace. But in God's plan, we see in his revelation that he uses specific physical objects for this. Now, they didn't take the handkerchief of just anyone to do miracles. They took St. Paul's handkerchief, and it was because God granted special gifts to St. Paul for his ministry. And there were miraculous uh, healings and stuff, like with Peter and the other apostles. And so it was through their intercession and through the gifts God granted those individuals, it even says that they would lay people out so that the shadow of St. Peter would cure the sick. So again, it wasn't the physical body of Peter even in that moment. It was his shadow, but it's a connection to him. And we, anyway, we see that that's where the Catholic practice began, even in the Bible with the things I just shared with you, with the apostles. So anyhow, that's the reason why we still do things like that. And if you continue to follow this podcast, I'm going to keep this crucifix of Jesus on my table here. You're going to get to see this in upcoming episodes. I'm going to spin it around on the back. You won't be able to see this real clearly, but engraved are the Stations of the Cross. And, um, you know, the Stations of the Cross is a prayer practice that has been developed by the Catholic Church to enter deeply into prayer, into the passion and death of Jesus Christ. And it's a, it's a practice that was very much popularized by St. Francis of Assisi, who lived around the 13th century, about that time period. And he was very big into making Jesus more present to him. And so they would act out the passion of Jesus, and it ultimately grew into what we call the Stations of the Cross. Since I'm talking about St. Francis, and I've also alluded to Christmas coming up, I'll also say that the practice of the nativity scene that we have in our modern culture comes from St. Francis. So it was St. Francis in the 13th century who took people and, and animals and put them in a manger scene and tried to 
really enter into pondering what it was like to be there at the birth of Jesus. And so he was the first person to do that and to kind of create that type of devotion in the Catholic Church. And any Christian who uses a nativity set this day really has the inspiration of St. Francis, a Catholic saint, to thank for that. Now, another thing I'll mention about the nativity scene is he made it in his concept in the 13th century, but that's not what a nativity scene would have looked like at the time of Jesus. I mean, some of the research I've done indicate that the stables where the animals were kept were actually sometimes in the downstairs of a house, like a picture of a two-story house. Everybody else sleeps and lives upstairs, and the animals are kept downstairs. So, you know, it's very possible that Mary and Joseph were downstairs with all the animals while all the people were upstairs. I don't know. I can't say I wasn't there. But just know that the concept of the nativity scene was generated you know, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ultimately. But God used St. Francis in the time of the 13th century to really create that. So um, that kind of segues into the birth, the, 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 the birth of Jesus, the celebration of that at Christmas time. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit brought this to my mind today to share with you. Especially this is this podcast is an expression of the new Catholic evangelization. The new evangelization in the Catholic Church, which is different than the original evangelization. The original evangelization was to non-baptized people, people who did not believe, did not know about Jesus. They came to believe and requested baptism. Baptism, as I said before, is the necessary response of a person who comes to believe in Jesus because God grants his spiritual power through the washing with the sacred water of baptism. Just as I talked about God granting grace through physical objects, he literally does that in baptism. And if you read the book of Acts this week, you will notice that every time someone comes to believe in Jesus, they must be baptized. I mean, there may be one exception in the whole book as far as the way it was recorded, but basically always people who come to believe must be baptized. Even St. Paul, after having been knocked down, encountering Jesus before he was a believer in Jesus and, you know, having his eyesight taken away, he was baptized immediately upon, you know, Ananias praying over him and him regaining his sight because Baptism is the necessary response for becoming a follower of Jesus because God grants true and powerful spiritual grace through this sacrament. So through this sacrament of baptism, your sins are completely washed away. Original sin, which we are all born with, is washed away. So if you are a believer in Jesus and you don't believe that baptism is necessary, I am here to tell you that You have not been taught correctly, and I urge you to read the book of Acts this week, paying attention to the sacrament of baptism and how people needed to be baptized. Even Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, 38, where people say, what must we do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the reception of the Holy Spirit. Because in baptism, your sins are washed away and you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you are not baptized, those sins are not washed away and you do not receive the powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit the way God intends to give it to you. So what I really wanted to focus on this week, though, is 
the idea of Mary's perpetual virginity. Because here again, we have non-Catholics who say that Mary did not remain a virgin after the birth of Jesus, and it's because they've misunderstood certain scripture passages. So I'm actually going to pull out my Bible here, and I'm going to start with the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, and I encourage anyone who's listening to take out a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to look at verses 24 and 25. So here I'm going to, this is, this is the moment of Joseph, you're basically being saying, don't, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So as we know, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, basically asks her to be the mother of Jesus. She says, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. So she accepts it. Although I should say this, the sentence she says before that, she says, how can this be for I have no relations with a man? So picture this, guys. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're going to be the mother of God, basically. Now, the tradition has always been that Mary, being filled with grace from the moment of her conception, had a, a genuine calling and desire to devote herself singularly to God, meaning she was never planning to get married. Um, And so when the angel says to her that she's going to be the mother of Jesus, now she's betrothed to Joseph, and tradition has always held that her and Joseph plan to remain celibate even in the context of marriage because Mary had always planned to devote herself singularly to God. So that's why she says, how can this be since I have no relations with a man? If you think about the logic, she's about to get married to a dude, a guy. If she's planning and if Joseph and her are planning to have relations, she would probably think, okay, I'm about to get married. We're going to have relations. I can see how I'm going to conceive. But she doesn't say that. She doesn't do that. She says, how can this be? I have no relations with a man. I have no intention of having relations with a man. And that's when the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you will conceive and bear a son. So now listen, here is verses 24 and 25 of Matthew chapter 1. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her, her being Mary, as his wife but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son and he named him Jesus. Okay, so the word until, in our logical way of thinking in our current culture, to us infers, okay, once she gave birth, then she had children because it says until. But that is not what the author intended to say. First, I'm going to explain this. So, The writers of scripture were writing in the context of the culture they lived in. And in the culture that they lived in, to use this wording does not carry the same meaning it does for us today. Let me give you an example by turning. You can keep your finger in that page and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25. So this, this passage is speaking about Jesus Christ, the King of us all, the Lord of the universe. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So in this passage, 
They use the same word until, that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That does not mean that once he has put his enemies under his feet, Jesus will no longer reign as king of the universe. It does not mean that suddenly, once all of his enemies are under his feet, Jesus is no longer king. It doesn't mean he is no longer God. Rather, it is the author's way of communicating that this is a definitive thing that's going to happen. And it's going to, God's going to do this until he brings to fulfillment his plan. And then once his plan is fulfilled, he will live out eternity with his plan in the, the presence of being fulfilled. So now, my point is that word until does not, in the context of the intention of the author, mean that Joseph and Mary, in their case, had relations after the birth of Jesus. Now, let me further support this. Not only has the church proclaimed this since the time of the apostles, but there are other passages in Scripture that both distract from this and support it. So let me talk about both. To talk about what distracts from this, let's turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. If you have your Bible handy, turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. So when they were talking about Jesus, you know, they were like, you know, who is this guy, basically? In chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon, and not are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So here we have a list of people that are presented as if they were the siblings, the blood siblings of Jesus. So here, let me count them. There's James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters. So four boys are named and sisters plural. So at a very minimum, six siblings are indicated here. In the Gospel of Luke, we have an experience where Jesus is left behind or stays behind at the temple at the age of about 12. So in verse 41, it says this, Now every year his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. So now here's Jesus at the age of 12. When the festival was ended, and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you with great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. So here's Jesus at the age of 12, and I ask you, 
Where are all these siblings? Where are the at least six siblings that we might get a reference of from Mark? So in the context of Jesus's life, the, the town he grew up in was about the size of four acres. Everybody knew everybody's business. Everybody was like family. And they did not actually have a word in their language that distinguished blood relatives from friends and neighbors even. And they didn't have a word to distinguish even like uncles from cousins or brothers. So if you think back to early in the Bible, we have Lot, Abraham and Lot. Abraham's a primary figure back in the book of Genesis. Abraham was the uncle of Lot, but in some occasions was referred to as the brother of Lot because of this whole use of wordage. They didn't have a set of words to distinguish between uncles, brothers. So in a certain context, you could say some of these people were the uncles of Jesus or friends of Jesus and cousins of Jesus or neighbors of Jesus. Now, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, where those people are named, Again, that was Mark 6, chapter or chapter 6, verse 3. I'll read it again. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? Now, later in that gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 40, we hear a couple of these brothers mentioned again. So this is at the foot of the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross, being in the process of dying. And there were also women looking on at a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and of Salem. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. So with other scripture passages, we know that this Mary, there's Mary Magdalene, this other Mary, who is the wife of Clopas, who is the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. These are people who are mentioned earlier on as brothers of Jesus, but these boys or these men are sons of another Mary, not the mother of Jesus. Now, also, in that culture, the, the whole culture revolved around the firstborn son. And if even if you had one son and he was an only child, he was still referred to as the firstborn son because it was such a pivotal thing in that culture. So when it's mentioned in scripture of, you know, even if the if someone had a boy who was the firstborn son, even if he was the only son, he would still be referred to as the firstborn. It was the firstborn son's responsibility to take care of his parents in their old age, especially if his father died and his mother became a widow, the firstborn son would take responsibility to take care of his mother. If the firstborn son died and there was a secondborn son, it became the secondborn son's responsibility. And you did not mess with that family structure. Now, Jesus, if he was the oldest brother of many brothers, then it would fall to the secondborn Maybe in this case, we would if, if James, who's mentioned first, was the secondborn, then it would become James's responsibility. And it would be an offense, and Jesus wouldn't do that, uh, to, to take that responsibility from James. 
when Jesus is hanging on the cross, because he is an only child, he took care of his mother and assigned John, the apostle, to become her son and for her to become the mother of John, the apostle, the beloved disciple who stood at the foot of the cross. Again, this is because Jesus was an only child. Now, let's pause and do a quick summary of everything we're talking about here. So, in Scripture, there are clear indications that Mary not only planned to remain a virgin after, you know, having the child Jesus, but there are other passages, like even on the cross, that affirm that. We also see that references to Jesus' brothers and sisters— if he had that many brothers and sisters, Joseph and Mary would have had to get gotten right to work at having more children, especially since Joseph drops out of the picture before very long. In fact, after Jesus's, you know, situation in the temple when he was 12, we don't hear of Joseph again. So we don't know if he died a week later, a month later, a year later, but again, there's no depiction of other children when Jesus is at the age of 12. Also, we are aware that, you know, the word for brother and sister had, it was the same meaning for relatives, cousins, even neighbors. And so when the writer was using that wordage, it took on a different collective meaning than in our culture now. We also see James and Joseph, who have been named here as brothers of Jesus, are depicted later in the Gospel of Mark as sons of another mother. So not blood brothers of Jesus, but perhaps relatives of Jesus or neighbors of Jesus. And again, this is a person named Mary. I think it would be really weird for Mary's parents to name both their daughters Mary. Could you picture that? I've never in my life heard of it. Maybe it could happen. But if this other Mary was a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, then that would mean the parents named both their children Mary. I don't know. I think that would be very awkward and not plausible, which would indicate that this Mary was probably a relative of some type or a neighbor or a friend, but not Mary's blood sister. However, as I said, I think it's clear that the words for brother and sister and cousin and neighbor, it had a collective meeting. And so we must defer to the tradition of the church. Remember St. Paul said, Hold firm to the traditions that have been passed on to you by us, either by a letter of ours or an oral teaching or an oral statement. So again, we have to trace back what has been the teaching of the church on the virginity of Mary since the time the church began. And this is a teaching the church, anytime you find a teaching on the topic, you find that it is supportive that Mary remained a virgin after the birth of Jesus. Now, I'm going to appeal to your human reasoning and logic. If you're a man, pretend you're Joseph for a minute. If you're a woman, pretend you're Mary for a minute. Now, you have been asked by God Almighty to raise the Father's only son. Think about that. The Father in heaven's only begotten son. He is asking you to raise him on earth so that he can save humanity. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, well, first of all, I have four children. 
And it is exhausting taking care of four children, let alone six or more, and giving one of them all of the focus that I could possibly give. Now, if you were Joseph or Mary, wouldn't you want to devote all of your focus on raising the only son of God? Would you really want to be utterly distracted by six other kids or more running around? Like, if you have six children, your ability to give attention to one of them is stifled radically. You just can't do it. Now, this is the only son of God, and you have been given that task. Folks, imagine sleeping in the same room with Jesus, the only son of God. I don't think you're going to have sexual thoughts, my friends. You're going to be sitting there looking at the only son of God, and you're going to be like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe what our father in heaven is asking of me, of all the people on earth that would ever live. I have been given this task to raise the only son of God. Hello? That's going to take every bit of every ounce of everything you've got to do it right. So my friends, I really appeal to you to prayerfully consider the teachings that have been handed on to us since the time of the apostles, that Mary did remain a virgin even after the birth of Jesus. And I've given you, uh, you know, plenty of scripture passages to, to look at to help support that. And if you want to look at the one where Jesus gives John to Mary and Mary to John on the cross, that's John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. So as we go into this Christmas season and we think about the virgin birth of Jesus, I think the, the writer's intention was to explicitly say that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's the intention of the writer. This is not by a human man. This child was not born of human origin, of a man, a human man. It was by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. And that was the intention of the writer. And using the word until did not, the, the writer did not intend for us to take that as they had other children after Jesus was born. And I've shared with you like the passage of Jesus reigning until all of his enemies are under his feet from 1 Corinthians. Again, that wasn't the intention of the use of the word until. When Jesus was 12, we see no siblings when Jesus remained in the temple. We don't know how much longer Joseph remained after that time, but it may not have been very long. Ultimately, when we see Jesus hand Jesus hand Mary to John and John to Mary when Jesus was on the cross, we see him taking responsibility as the only firstborn son and making sure his mother was taken care of after he left this place called Earth. So if you're not a Catholic and you have thought that Jesus has had other siblings, I ask you to replay what I just shared and take it to prayer. This is the mother of Jesus we're talking about, and this is the holy woman that God prepared to be the mother of God. So this is something to be taken seriously, and I think we owe it to Jesus out of respect for his choice to choose this woman and what He, the, his church has passed on regarding her. Those are the teachings we need to follow. Now, we can read the Bible with, without we don't have the authority to authentically interpret the Bible on our own. 
We need the guidance of the Holy Spirit given through the authority of the church. So we have to defer to the teachings passed on by the church. As St. Paul said, hold on to the teachings we passed on to, him being one of the leaders of the church. And we are to hold on to the teachings passed down by the leaders. So anybody who's taught you otherwise, that, that Mary did not remain a virgin, you need to question their authority. Where does that person get any authority to give an, a, a definitive interpretation of Scripture? And if you want to go back and listen to some of my earlier episodes, I talked about the authority God, Jesus gave to Peter, the first pope, the keys of authority in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, uh, and that is in fulfillment of Isaiah 22, 20 to 24. Again, I've talked about that in previous episodes, and I've, I'm already, I'm looking, I'm watching the clock here. I've already talked for about a little over 40 minutes, so I want to transition now into the outdoors portion of this podcast, but I really urge you to take these things to prayer. And I will remind you to also take to prayer the teaching on Jesus in the Eucharist that is a Catholic teaching that has been held from the time of the apostles till now, that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist in the Catholic Church. And I've asked you to pray with John chapter 6, verse 51 through 58. And I will tell you that everybody who has challenged me in past episodes, and I have begged them to pray with that scripture passage, I'm just going to assume they did because they stopped bothering me after that. And I think it's because when you come to terms with the reality that this is a teaching of Jesus and this is what he wants us to put our faith in, then that is the starting point for you to be able to begin to believe all these other teachings that the Catholic Church has always taught and continues to teach to this very day. And I think, you know what? Maybe the Holy Spirit's bringing it back to my mind. I started to talk about the, the original evangelization was to people who were not baptized. The new evangelization is to bring the true teachings of Jesus even to the baptized who have been either incorrectly catechized, meaning they were taught incorrectly, or who have left their faith, and we need to call them back to their faith. So here's an invitation to you. If you're somebody who doesn't go to church anymore, or maybe you just go Easter and Christmas, and you're coming up on that time of the year where you come back to church, I'm asking you to make a New Year's resolution right now. How about come back for good? Make Christmas your first time back of many times back. Come back every week and begin to pray and ask our Father in Heaven to guide you through His Holy Spirit to have a deep, meaningful relationship with Him and you will have a better life than you do now. And yes, you'll have challenges. The devil will try to stop you. But you know what? The devil's going to try to stop us no matter what we do. Even if we're not trying to grow closer to God, the devil's going to keep trying to pull us deeper and deeper into sin and misery. So you got a choice, folks. You, your choice is you can have joy in the Lord as you battle against the evil one, or you can just let the evil one beat you up and really not have joy on the Lord in the midst of being pummeled by the evil one. But God gives you all the grace you need to beat the evil one if you go to him through His for his grace in the sacraments and in prayer. So there's my invitation to all of you. Please come back. Please take all these things to prayer. If, if this whole perpetual virginity of Mary is new to you, Go back and listen to the scripture passages again. Pray with them. Folks, the work of the Holy Spirit 
is to bring you closer to the truth, which means bring you closer to Jesus. And if you have not placed your faith in the fullness of truth already, the Holy Spirit wants to work with you. The only way that will be possible is if you pray. Don't just think about these things. Take them to prayer and ask for God's grace and guidance. Okay, now I want to transition into for a few minutes talking about the outdoors portion of this podcast. Here we are, we're, we're about to, um, we're entering, we're in December and we're going to enter the late archery season very soon. And I will, I actually am out hunting right now because in the urban zone, the special regulation urban zone, I still get to bow hunt even during gun season because they keep that open for bow hunters because it's a bow hunting only section. And I've gone out a few times. I did encounter a nice 10-pointer. And, uh, oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to pause because God just reminded me that um, I need to give you an update. So last week I mentioned I I sent my resume to the Diocese of Green Bay um, because I want to take the – I want – I mean, my passion's in evangelization, and so I would love to take a job as, like, director of evangelization for a diocese somewhere. And um, and I was like, God, you know, my life is yours. If you want me to move to Green Bay, I will do that. Even though I don't personally want to, I'd rather stay where we're at, um, I will do it if that's what you want. And the day I aired that episode, like two hours after it episode the it aired. I got an email from the Diocese of Green Bay that they're not considering me for the interview process. They they have other candidates that they want to pursue. So um, there's an update on that for those of you who have been curious. I will not be leaving my area at, at this time. I also sent an email to the new Archbishop here and asked if he was thinking of of creating that type of position. And he said, don't get your hopes up. I have no intention of doing that right now. So uh, I'd continue to discern what God wants me to do with my desires and passion for evangelization. Uh, This podcast is one place that I'm utilizing some of those gifts. I'm also finishing up a series of like, I think it's six different books. I have a whole series on evangelization that I have been working on, and I continue to work on those every day to get those finished. So that's in the works. Now, let me jump right back over to the hunting portion that I was just starting to get into. And th- by the way, thank you, God, for reminding me that. Um, so I was out this past week, or, and a, a nice 10-point came out of the woods uh, and was heading in my direction. I'm like, all right, here we go. He's like a, looked like about a three-and-a-half, maybe four-and-a-half-year-old. And, you know, yeah, I would like to get another older, mature, more mature deer than a three-year-old, but that's my starting point. If it's a three-year-old, I'm going to shoot. And so I saw it. I'm like, okay, not quite the caliber I was ultimately hoping for, but I'll take it. If this is what you want to give me, God, I'm going to take it. And as I'm praying to God and thinking about these things, the buck turned and crossed the stream about 70 yards from me and never came my way. I mean, I tried calling to it. I have footage of it, you know, and it's, I'll probably incorporate it in a video in the upcoming future, but uh, I did not get a shot. So I'm, you know, taking care of my kids, dropping them off, picking them up from school. My wife had a very busy work schedule, so I could not hunt during the week. And the, the homeowner that lives at the property where I was at, where I encountered that 10-pointer, sent me a picture of a giant, giant eight-point. I mean, I'm talking six-and-a-half-year-old type of deer or better. I mean, this thing was fully mature, just an absolute 
stud giant buck. And he's like, look at, look who just went by your tree stand. I'm like, oh man. And then I went out on Saturday to that yesterday morning and evening and nothing came by. And it's out and it's cold folks. It's cold being out there. And you know, I've been, I just was praying and talking to God about it. He's like, you know, Lord, you could bring a deer by if you wanted to. And, and I believe that. And I know that, but Obviously, you haven't done that. And I think about all the people who follow my videos who think about those types of things, who are out there like, God, please just let me get a buck so I can go home and be with my family, which is a similar thought that I have sometimes. But you know what? The Catholic tradition always has held that we all are going to suffer and carry our cross in this life. And Jesus tells us to carry our cross every day. And we believe that Jesus suffers with us and in us, and through our suffering, he unites it to his, and he brings about salvation even through our own suffering. So folks, as I sit out there and suffer in the cold, I believe that God allows that type of situation because he can bring about a greater good, and the greater good is the salvation of more people. Again, it's it's not that I'm doing anything, it's that God's providence is allowing me to participate in the, the sufferings of Jesus. Because Jesus is alive in us even now. That's why he said to St. Paul, when he knocked him down before Paul was a believer, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. And as we know, Saul was overseeing Christians being persecuted and put to death. So Jesus is alive in us right now. And just as he hung on the cross to save us, he continues to suffer with us because through it, he saves others. Folks, I offer my suffering when I'm out there for other hunters. Like that, I feel like that's one of the areas that God has called me to, to give myself is, is to try to help hunters grow closer to him. And so by offering my sufferings for hunters, I'm praying for them to be virtuous and authentic and for men to not leave their wives for someone else and for men to not cheat on their wives and for men to not shoot deer after shooting hours are over, you know, and I'm praying for men to, to live a life of virtue. And so if you've ever been tempted to cheat on your wife or to leave your wife and you suddenly for some reason felt like, nah, I'm not going to do it. Just know that there's people like me who have been suffering and offering it for you to have that grace. And if you're somebody out there suffering in the cold, I invite you to offer your suffering for others in the same way. You know why? Because God loves it when we love others. And by offering your suffering for someone else, it's an act of love for that person, even if it's somebody you haven't even met. So anyhow, I offer you that, and as you go through, especially in the late season, if you're in a cold area like I am when it's you're freezing and shivering out there and you just wish this whole thing could be over, you get your buck and you're done, well, guess what? God allows it because he can bring about a greater good, far more good than anything of us harvesting a deer. I leave you with that. I thank you for staying tuned. Uh, if you want to get in on the giveaways, go to my website, I think this has been a very important podcast with some really important messages. So I encourage you to listen to it again and pray with some of these things. And I will leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit doesn't physically have hands. It's a figure of speech. I will leave this podcast in the 
bosom of the Holy Spirit. And if God wants me to continue, you're going to see more episodes popping up. And if God doesn't inspire anything, then we'll wait until God inspires something. Until then, take care and God bless you.